This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Chris Grosso with the Indie Spiritualist Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is Matthew Fox. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. Good to be with you. Thanks. So just give you guys a very quick bio on Matthew for anyone not um, familiar with his work. Matthew Fox is the author of over 30 books, including Meister Eckhart, The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Christian Mystics, and most recently... A Way to God, a very wonderful book, a preeminent scholar and popularizer of Western mysticism. He became an Episcopal priest after being expelled from the Dominican order by Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict the, what you, the 16th? Is that correct? 16th. 16th. Mm-hmm. You can visit Matthew and learn more about his work at MatthewFox.org. So again, Matthew, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Chris. So, I was very excited when I heard from Kim at New World Library, who's your publicist, about this new book you're doing, because I've been a fan of Merton's work for many years, like so many of us are. Um, I actually even have a quote um, of one of of Merton's quotes tattooed on me. I got it many years ago, and uh, just really, he's been a very important teacher in my own life. Great. So, I wanted to start, let's just get the obvious out of the way. What inspired you to write a book about Thomas Merton. Well, last year was the centennial of Merton's death. I mean, birth. And um, the Thomas Merton Society asked me to give a talk uh, in Louisville, where they're located, which is very near his uh, monastery, on Merton and myself. And then I threw in Meister Eckhart as well, because Eckhart was so pivotal to Merton's conversion, really. And uh, it's been very important to my work as well. So in giving that talk, it was only an hour. <clears throat> I realized I had an awful lot more material than I could put into an hour. So out of that, I, uh, I developed this book. And partly it was Merton that sent me to Paris to the Institut Catholique back in 1967 to study uh, spirituality. And... Uh, it's there that I met my mentor, Perishanu, who named the creation spiritual tradition for me and so forth. So really, I owe Merton for all the trouble I've gotten in. So I figure <laughs> I owed him something, and that's this book. Uh, but I really enjoyed doing it because 
I had not read Merton's journals that only began coming out what, 10, 10 years ago or so, and uh, <clears throat> really enjoyed getting into them and seeing the whole picture of Merton's journey and Meister Eckhart uh, and, and myself. And so um, I really had a lot of fun doing it. And it was, in some ways, it was kind of a, a circle for me, uh, going from my correspondence with Merton back in 1967 to uh, this occasion to speak to his his journey with more perspective, of course. Yeah. And so talk to me a little bit about actually your relationship, your personal relationship with Merton. How did you connect with him? And, and I know you mentioned he's the one who sent you uh, over to Paris, but could you talk a bit about that relationship? Yes. I never met him personally, but we did yeah. correspond. Yeah. And I sent him a letter because my Dominican superiors had said I can go to Europe to get a doctorate in spirituality but we couldn't agree on where I should go. So I wrote Merton, and he said, go to Paris. And um, <laughs> the Dominicans said, you can't go to Paris. I said, why not? They said, we never sent anyone to France who came home again. <laughs> <laughs> so I beat them over the head with Merton's letter for three months, and finally they relented and let me go. Then, uh, then the time came years later when I think they, they regretted that I came home again, but that's another story. <laughs> but... Um, Merton wrote me this fine letter, which I, I, I reproduce in, in one of the early chapters and really exegete it because it had a lot to say about what's going on in culture. One point he makes, he says, everyone's taking LSD, everyone's interested in mysticism, but uh, people, theologians, aren't, aren't addressing it, he said. So I'm very happy that you're interested in that subject. That was one thing he said. He also sent me a big stack of um, articles of his, of that had not been published, uh, notes from his teachings to the novices and others in the monastery. He said, these may be of interest to you someday. And then he died, you know, about six months later. So uh, so he also, you might say, bequeathed me some, some very interesting documents. Of course, most of them are available in his center uh, because he he copied everything. I don't, they weren't originals, but uh, they were part of my, um, my appreciation uh, to Merton for his uh, entrusting me uh, with his ideas. And here he was 52 at the time that I wrote him. I was about 26, half his age. And um, so there's, there's something of a lineage, lineage there, I think. Again, because an Eckhart is the key uh, to both, both of us. Right. He would write in his notebook toward the end of his life, Eckhart is my lifeboat, Eckhart is my lifeboat. So he's telling us how important Eckhart was to him. And I love that you, in this book, you not only write about Merton, but you bring Eckhart into it again. One of your, it might have been your last book or one of your last books that I loved the last time we spoke was for Meister Eckhart, a mystic warrior for our time. And so, again, you bring him back in, which is wonderful. So can you talk a little bit about that connection between Merton and Eckhart? Yes. Um, Merton's early work... Uh, was very dualistic, Augustinian, filled with guilt and, and shame. Yeah. It comes through in his autobiography, which was a national bestseller, so millions of copies, came out in 1948, called um, Seven Story Mountain. And I read that when I was a 16-year-old teenager. And, you know, it, it affected me, like it, it affected a lot of, of people before and since, uh, because he is very articulate. He's quite an artist in his writing. He's articulate about the contemplative life, and that was important. But, but um, in 1958, 
something very significant happened, and that is that um, Merton encountered the work of Dr. Suzuki, who, of course, uh, brought Zen Buddhism to North America. And Suzuki kept pushing him in their correspondence to go deeper into Eckhart. In fact, in one letter, he said, quit quoting Cashin, who's a 6th century monk. Quote Eckhart, go deeper into Eckhart. So, of course, Suzuki was very much uh, Merton's senior. Really, he was a an elder at that time. And in fact, Merton went to visit Suzuki in New York City, which is unusual to get permission to, to leave the monastery. And uh, Suzuki was 94 at the time. And they had an encounter, and Merton wrote afterwards, he said, it's not enough to read about Buddhism or to appreciate Buddhism. You have to meet a real Buddhist like Suzuki, he said, to appreciate the dignity of the tradition and the depth of it. So that was really a very moving moving uh, tribute, I think, to Suzuki. But um, from 1958 on, uh, Merton is continually quoting Eckhart. And of course, Eckhart was very prophetic. He also, of course, is deeply ecumenical. That is to say, as I put out in my Eckhart book that you referred to, and I put him in the room with, with Buddhism and Thich Nhat Hanh. I put him in the room with Kumaraswamy and the Hindu tradition. Uh, I put him in the room with, with Black Elk and the shamanistic tradition. And with... Um, Sufism, uh, because really he speaks to the heart of all those traditions. That's how how deep and universal uh, Eckhart is. And so I think Eckhart had a lot to do with, with Merton's stretching to go east, learning the wisdom of the east, as well as to his prophetic side, because Merton was very, I mean, uh, Eckhart was extremely involved in the prophetic work, the work of social justice of his time. In fact, he actually says, the person who understands what I say about justice understands everything I have to say. Now, for a mystic, that is very strong language. And um, so Merton's shift from being this guilt-ridden, dualistic, uh, Augustinian-like monk for 18 years, 1940, when he entered the mo monastery, to 1958, to being a real prophetic Christian from 1958 to his murder, and I, I'm, I know it was a murder, in 1968, he was martyred. Uh, for his stand in the Vietnam War, against the Vietnam War, uh, this shift was due in great part to Eckhart. And in, in all of his writings in that 10 years, he's citing Eckhart or he's, um, he's echoing him. And in his second to last book, uh, Zen and the Birds of Appetite, it's entirely really an interaction with Suzuki and Meister Eckhart. And uh, so cr clearly, uh, when Eckhart, when Merton wrote near the end of his life, Eckhart is my lifeboat, he meant it. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Very well said. I, uh, and, and I love, again, going back to the Meister Eckhart book you did, I love how you put him in the room with all these other great teachers mm -hmm. from the, the wisdom traditions. And then you see also that the, how Buddhism and Eastern traditions impacted Merton in his own life. And, and I love... You know, you read some of the quotes from from these guys, or just their works in general. But Eckhart saying, "Love God is uh, God is a, a not God, not two. You know, that's very Buddhist. You know, a very non-dualist stance. Yeah, I love that. And then, <laughs> and yet, and yet, he never met a Buddhist in his life, and never right. read a Buddhist book. Right. Which I think is so amazing. He went so deep into his own soul and into yes. his own tradition yes. that he found the same truths that Buddhists have found. And that's a tremendous compliment to Buddhism, of course, for finding its universal truths. But it's also a compliment to Eckhart himself that right. he he went that deep. Right. And uh, 
many Westerners do not realize that we have that deep a, a, uh, a lineage uh, as we do. But uh, Merton helps, I think, to to also represent that same that same depth. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. So you you'd mentioned um, earlier you were talking about creation spirituality, which I know you write about. It, you say it's both a tradition and a movement celebrated by mystics and agents of social social change from every age and culture, and again called creation spirituality. So can you elaborate a bit further on that? I know there's 12 principles you write about it acknowledging. Can you talk a bit about creation spirituality? Well, creation spirituality is the, uh, the oldest source in the Hebrew Bible. It's the J source very first writer in the Hebrew Bible. It's also the tradition of wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible, which scholars now agree was the um, tradition of the historical Jesus. And the wisdom tradition actually came late in Judaism, but um, it followed on the demise of the prophetic tradition. So it actually inherits the prophetic uh, uh, preoccupation with justice and compassion. Uh, one of the famous lines in the Hebrew Scriptures is that wisdom befriends the prophets. So it's a prophetic tradition and a, um, a wisdom tradition, and it's about finding God and revelation in nature, not just in the book. Right. Or, if you will, in the book of nature, not just in the book that humans put together. So um, many scholars believe that Jesus was considered illegitimate in his village, therefore he was not allowed into the synagogue on the Sabbath, Therefore, he went out into the nature to pray. And, of course, we know that he spent uh, several years uh, as an adolescent um, uh, studying with uh, John the Baptist in the wilderness. And, by the way, the wilderness in Jesus' day, Judea, uh, included lions. <laughs> it was really wilderness. So um, this is traditional which Jesus comes. And... It is a feminist tradition. Wisdom is feminine in the Bible and all over the world. And um, it cares about cosmology and nature. Uh, and uh, it's about creativity and uh, playfulness, like uh, Proverbs 8 says that uh, wisdom plays with God before the creation of the world. Um, and it's a tradition of the great mystics that I've been trying to um, uncover for 45 years, people like Hildegard of Bingen in the 12th century, Francis of Assisi, who came right after her, Thomas Aquinas, Mactilda Magdeburg, Meister Eckhart, Julian Norwich, who follows Eckhart, and Nicholas of Cusa, about whom the late uh, physicist David Bohm says, I owe more to Cusa than I do to Einstein, which is a pretty pretty big mouthful yeah. from a late 20th century uh, physicist. So um, I think Grace Spiritual really speaks to the issues today, including, of course, ecological um, uh, devastation and peril, because it is about the sacredness of nature and the revelation of God through nature. Right. And that was uh, Eckhart's tradition. And it, and it became Merton's tradition, too. Also, it's very Celtic. Merton had Welsh... Um, uh, one side of his family was Welsh, which is Celtic, and uh, he, he acknowledges that, how much he, he inherits from the Welsh uh, uh, lineage. And um, so it's uh, obviously it's universal to the extent that any religion honors nature as sacred and as a source of revelation, then they are all in some way uh, playing in the, the sandbox of creation spirituality.
Yeah, that's that's really well said. It's making me think of actually the teachings on panentheism, which I learned about actually through your work years ago. And, you know, you're, you're mentioning nature, and I'm thinking of the transcendentalist writers like Whitman and Thoreau that also had their beautiful nature mystic experiences. Um, but, you know, as you talk about in these teachings, how God is quite literally in all things, as all things are quite literally in God. It is a completely non-dual uh, experience. Exactly. And that is the heart of, of panentheism. You've got it. And to me, panentheism is the mystical view of the world. Uh, and just to cite one person, Mechtilde Megeberg, the 13th century Begin, member of the Begin movement, which was the women's movement of the 13th century, she says, the day of my spiritual awakening was the day I saw and knew I saw all things in God and God in all things. So it's like a fish in water. The fish is in the water, the water is in the fish. And uh, often the fish doesn't realize that. <laughs> and so with us, God is in us and all things and we are in God and we can miss that especially in a dualistic or theistic uh, naming of our relationship to the divine and remember atheism literally means no theism thank you that's what atheism means yes. so from that point of view I'm an atheist because I'm not a theist theism says we're here and God's out there someplace right. Right. but panentheism says no there's this this intimacy Things are in God, and God is in things. And Jesus talked that way, too, when he said the kingdom of God is within you and the, the kingdom of God is among you. That, too, is panentheistic. There's a lot of panentheism uh, in the New Testament, and uh, a number of people have missed this. But uh, And John, John deals with it when he talks about the Christ saying, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches, and, and uh, my Father and I are in you. You are in us. It's, it's panentheistic language. It, yeah, and I love that, you know, to, to go back to the teachings of the East, Buddhism, for example, we have these teachings of emptiness, which are often misconstrued mm. as a nihilistic teaching, whereas all it's saying is it's empty of this illusion, illusionary separate self that we believe we are. And, and it, that very much to me is saying the same thing as God is in all things, all things are in God. The language is different. But when you have the experience, whether it's through the Christian lens or the Buddhist lens, it, when you have that experience, there is no more lens at that point. Huh. You know, you see right through this illusion of self and you recognize there is no subject and object. It literally is one dance unfolding mm -hmm. in a most beautiful way, really. So. Well, that's right. And remember the word for spirit, in not only in the Bible, but in most languages around the world, is the same as the word for breath. Mm. So... Um, Breath is in us, but we're also in breath. Yeah. A scientist say, well, you look at the sky and see blue, um, that sky, the blue sky, is in us. We're breathing the sky. Yes. And so, once again, it's, it's the question, what do we see, you know? And you see the effects of breath, obviously, like you see the effects of wind, but we don't see wind. We don't see breath. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Right. So that's how spirit is. And... Uh, uh, and then when it comes to mind, mindfulness and, and emptiness, how, how can you be mindful uh, without being mind empty? Yes. So the emptying is important because, and that's what this is called the via negativa, the emptying. And uh, that's done in meditation. It's also done in suffering. When we lose the great experiences of loss in our lives, 
our emptying experiences, and they can, in fact, grow our soul for us if we see them uh, in that in that context, and not just in the context of of uh, zeroing in on, on what we lost. Uh, Eckhart says that he says if you're robbed of of you know say 50 shekels or something. Um, uh, don't meditate on those 50. Meditate on what you still got left. You know, <laughs> otherwise you're just going to go into a, a pitfall of depression. You see that we have to meditate on what what is, what is and what is not to kind of find that balance of yeah. emptying and filling in our lives. Yeah. So I know we've already kind of started this conversation, but I wanted to ask you about the title "A Way to God." But before we did that, like I said, we've already talked a little about this, but God is obviously, or can be obviously, a very loaded word for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I like where our conversation has already been going with, with kind of laying aside this dogmatic idea of a God, not something that's separate. So before we get into the actual title and why you named it, uh, I'd like to explore a little bit further with you this idea of God through the lens through which you write about God. Mm-hmm. Well, Eckhart would agree with you that God is a loaded word, and that's why one of his lines is, I pray God to rid me of God, one of his more memorable and radical (laughs) lines, you see, that we have to, that's part of the emptying, isn't it? We have to empty ourselves of our language for for God um, and for everything, including ourselves, uh, because it is that letting go that allows us to sink deeper and to taste and realize. And so Eckhart uh, has a very well-developed uh, apophatic divinity, which is the, the understanding of God as nothingness. Eckhart says, God is super essential darkness, mm-hmm. who has no name and will never be given a name. So that's the emptying. How different that is from American culture that puts in God we trust on every coin and dollar bill and MX missile that we put into the world. You see, it is such a, um, a reductionism on divinity to think that we can control it and label it. Uh, so being able to let go of our projections on God, which is what we're really looking, letting go of, is a very important part of growing up spiritually. And sad to say, many people do not grow up spiritually. And they, God for them is kind of like a, a Santa Claus in the sky or something. Um, there's a personal and an impersonal dimension to divinity. And in the West, we tend to over-personalize it, I think. Um, and uh, we have to let the mystery be a mystery. And that's what the mystery is called the via negativa, the, the, um, the super-essential darkness of God, the utter mysteriousness that gives it God no name at all. But... Um, on the other hand, we also experience God as light and as um, beauty and as justice and as creativity. Uh, our, our work of creativity is the work of the spirit. Just like uh, Thomas Aquinas says, the same spirit that hovered over the waters of the beginning of creation hovers over the mind of the artist at work. It's a beautiful affirmation of our, and we're all artists, of our powers of creativity, that we are um, carrying on the creative work of the spirit that that launched the whole um, enterprise uh, that we call the universe. And uh, so 
So I think there are many faces to divinity. Uh, and uh, there's justice, there's beauty, there's creativity, there's nothingness, there's silence, uh, and there's uh, light as well as darkness. And Eckhart has amazing teaching when he says, all the names we give to God come from an understanding of ourselves. So uh, we have to allow ourselves this kind of diversity too, that, that our, our beings are very profound and deep. Eckhart says, the human soul is ineffable like God is. So it's bottomless. And uh, Merton has a beautiful uh, poem about praying and he says, the bottom drops out of my soul. <laughs> that is just a beautiful way of talking about our, our infinite depths. Yeah. The bottom drops out of my soul. And from the, my cellar, love, louder than thunder, um, uh, roars love into the world. It's something like that. Um, it's just a powerful, powerful piece. But the fact that the bottom can drop out of our souls is very interesting information. You know, yes. we're not here to, to guard ourselves and keep it all in and contain it. We're here to let go. And of course, that's very Eckhartian too, what, what Merton says. Eckhart says, we let go from eternally. We, we, we sink eternally from letting go to letting go into God. So that's very much like Merton's saying, the bottom drops out of our soul. Divinity is, is to be found below in our lower chakras, not just up in the sky. Yeah, beautifully said. It's, as you're saying that, I'm also reminded of uh, talking with Ken Wilber, who will often call it spirit in action. You know, spirit constantly awakening to itself and making it more available to itself. And then you get to this point where you can start to see literally everything as an ornament of spirit. You know, and that and that one that oneness, which is uh, another beautiful way of kind of keeping oneself in alignment with the teachings. Oh, exactly, and that's what creation spirituality is. I think yeah. that that creation itself, all of nature, is continuously birthing, yes, and coming into being and birthing new being, and all of that carries uh, the spirit uh, and divinity with it. Yeah. Uh. So let's talk about the title, A Way to God. Um, what, what inspired that title? Well, it actually uh, came from uh, Merton's letter that he wrote me. Mm -hmm. And here's what he said. He said, I'm glad you are going to work on spiritual theology. I do think we are lying down on the job when we leave others to investigate mysticism, but we concentrate on more practical things. What people want of us, after all, is the way to God. So I took that phrase, the way to God, and just um, modified it slightly as a way to God and called the book A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. But I think that the, the four paths of creation spirituality are really um, dealt with explicitly, uh, both in Merton's words and in his practice and his living. Uh, and so he's very much uh, uh, an embodiment of this tradition. And as I point out in the book, I, I got those four paths from Meister Eckhart. And clearly I think uh, Merton did too, although he didn't have them explicitly named for him. Um, I came up with that naming after Merton had died, uh, but I got it from, from Eckhart. Not that he named all four by name, but that he has them there uh, in terms of practice. And so did Merton. 
So I really do think that Merton would, Merton's life would have been a little simpler if he, if he had heard, for example, about the Via Creativa, about the creative path, because he was such an artist, and he was torn between his creativity and his monastic uh, obligations, if you will. And um, I think uh, by naming creativity as one of the four paths, uh, he would have been relieved of some of his, um, his stress in that regard. And, you know, it's interesting because I knew that Merton had that creative side, but I did not recognize the extent to which it, it was there. You know, as, as I learned through your work, he was not only a writer and a poet, but, I mean, he was also a photographer, calligrapher, and a pianist. Um, yeah. So what do you think that Merton offered as far as the role of art in spirituality? Well, I think, number one, is his writing. Yeah. Uh, his poetry and his uh, prose. It's all um, so readable. Yes. He writes so uh, richly. And, you know, it's not easy to write about the interior life. Right. It isn't. Uh, William James says one of the signs of mysticism is ineffability. In other words, the inability to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, but Merton is capable of putting it into words in, in wonderful ways. I, uh, can I share one of his poems that I really please, love so much? Please do. I love it. Great. Um, I, I take great delight in this poem. He calls it First Lesson About Man. Man begins in zoology. So that I think that's his affirmation of evolution right there. He is the saddest animal. He drives a big red car called anxiety. Whenever he goes to the phone to call joy, he gets the wrong number. Therefore, he likes weapons. He knows all guns by their right names. Now, you know, this was written in the 1960s, but I, it's certainly relevant to today. Absolutely. I think of the Orlando Massacre here. Yes. When there is no joy, there's weapons. He drives a big black Cadillac called Death. Now he's putting anxiety into space. He flies his worries all around Venus, but it does him no good. Man is the saddest animal. He begins in zoology and gets lost in his own bad news. <laughs> it's an amazing poem. It really is. It's talking about our culture. You know, we're going into space, doing all these things. But it's also a warning that we're taking our unexamined souls into space with all this anxiety and all this joylessness and all the rest. And, and you know, things are not going to get brighter by doing that, you know. So it's a warning. I mean, there's so much in that little poem, but it's it can speak to a lot of people, even today, 60 years after it was written, you know. Absolutely. Uh, so that's how, how Merton touches us most, I think. And that's what I love about his work, is that it is timeless, you know. He just yes. had a way of conveying, not only in a, uh, as, you know, it's a bit humorous, it's very yes. thought-provoking, but it is timeless, the way he presents yes. it. What a gift, you know, to the world. What a gift, it's, exactly. And it's deep. Yes. You know, oh, that's yeah. That's probably what makes it timeless. Yeah. It's, it's deep. And he, at one point, you know, he criticizes the media. I mean, the Via Transformativa, the path of of uh, justice and, and compassion, is very well developed in Merton, of course. He, he, um, he took on issues like the Vietnam War and other very important issues. But um, uh, in the... In the process, he, he does not compromise. Uh, for example, he talks about the media. He says the, the media uh, provides a 
a uh, Niagara of trivia. Now, this was a meeting in the 1960s. Imagine what he'd be saying today in 2016 <laughs> about this Niagara of trivia, you know. Yeah. Uh, so he has a, this uncanny ability to really touch on the the issues that uh, are uh, disrupting our souls, really. He, uh, he does, and, and that's what I love is that he was very socially aware when it came to justice and freedom. And, I mean, he was speaking out about Martin Luther King and the civil rights activism. Uh, but not only that, he was also what, the first religious figure in America to speak out about the Vietnam War, which we've already talked about. And, I, I mean, how important that was. What an example he was setting mm -hmm. at the time. So, you know, I, I know you were starting to chat about it, but I would love to hear more about, you know, what are your thoughts on Merton's perspective when it comes to justice and freedom? And let me also point out, he was yeah. very critical of religion. Yes. And of yes. fundamentalism. Yes. But he talked about the marriage of um, empire and religion. And yes. he said how this is the destruction of, of religion. Um, and uh, even his own monks at a Easter mass, the Easter before he died, uh, he preached and he, he talked about how many Christians, including the monks, are worshiping a, a wax-like <laughs> Christ and, uh, uh, you know, an, an idol yeah. instead of uh, instead of the real thing. So, so he didn't spare his own order, his own community, or his own religion when it came to criticizing. So his criticism was not just about culture; it was also about his own his own uh, religion. And I think that's very important that he was self-critical also, and he talked about his own shortcomings a lot. Um, so, uh, and of course, he was mentor to Father Philip Berrigan and his brother, uh, and, and his brother Dan Berrigan, who died just uh, last month uh, at 94 years of age. And of course, they were activists who went to jail a number of times uh, because they'd done nonviolent protest against the Vietnam War. He was close to Dorothy Day, who went to jail countless times and um, so he they came to him for advice and for sucker a spiritual sucker if you will and um, that's no doubt why he was on the um, the watch list of the FBI and the CIA and and they were intercepting his mail and phone calls at the time even though it was um, against the law to do so it was what they had done to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. also of course and both Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy and Merton uh, died uh, uh, the same year, 1968. And um, there's there's really a lot of evidence now that Merton was murdered and um, because of his stand in the Vietnam War. And his last talk, delivered three hours before he died very suddenly, was called Karl Marx and Monasticism. Now, this was not the most prudent topic for a talk in 1968 in Southeast Asia. He was in Bangkok. Um, after all, that was the height of the Vietnam War. Now, I've spoken now to three CIA agents who were there at the time, and I asked them, did you guys kill Merton? And uh, one of them said, I'll neither affirm it nor deny it. Wow. The second one said, we were wallowing in cash at the time in the CIA in Southeast Asia. There was no accountability whatsoever. He said, if even one 
CIA agent felt Merton was a threat to America, he could have had him done in with no questions asked. The third one said to me, and this person I met after the book came out a month ago, he said, yes, we killed him. And he said, the last 40 years of my life have been trying to cleanse my soul from what I did as a CIA agent for three years in Southeast Asia. So I think there's no question Merton died a, a, a martyr, a martyr to the peace cause. And I think that's just more of the, um, of the richness of the man that, uh, that he, um, he paid an ultimate price for, what, for his prophetic voice and action. It's, it's, it's nothing short of tragic. You know, I'm, I, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking of Ramana Maharshi. And here's a person who died from cancer. And, and mm. uh, the tragedy in that to me was that had he taken a little more, a little better care of his body, he could have lived mm. a bit longer and, and continued mm. to share some more teachings with the world. Mm. Whereas with Merton, you know, it wasn't by choice. It was murder. And, that's, uh, and I can only imagine had he lived longer, what else he and not that he didn't bring you know a plethora yeah. of great things to this world but imagine what else we could have been graced with you know exactly because he died so young 53 yeah. is so yeah. young and he was at the height of his powers if you will and he was planning on going into a more aeromedical uh, world of more solitude after he came back from Asia but there have been so many issues since 1968 when he died, you know, that I wish he had been here to uh, help us to, uh, to uh, discuss and debate, you know. Right. So we lost so much. On the other hand, he had intimations that he was going to die young. Really? Yes, he did. Um, and um, furthermore, his, his work ethic was so profound. He worked so hard. I mean, he, he published 60 books. Yeah. Uh, not all of them were real long or anything, but that's a lot, and a lot of articles. But also, he had tremendous correspondence going. He had correspondence with Pasternak, uh, with um, Jacques Maritain, with all kinds of poets from Latin America and so forth. Um, uh, he was busy with the art of friendship. Joan Baez came and did picnics with him on the grounds and a lot of other people. Um, he was... He was unbelievably productive. Yes. And we realize his letters were not email or even by computer. They were <laughs> right. on, a, on a typewriter. Yeah. Uh, the guy got, I think, got very little sleep because he also had his responsibilities as a monk to be praying in the middle of the night and so forth. Yeah. And uh, so I think part of his intuition was that he was not going to live a long life. And so he wanted to you know, get the work done before he left us. And he writes uh, several times about his even his visions of dying young. So um, perhaps he was at least surprised of all uh, <laughs> at the age that he died. <laughs> this is true. Well, so you you know, you mentioned that he, uh, I'm, not even you don't have to mention, he was just ahead of his time. That is very obvious. And though he did mm -hmm. die in 68, which was before the feminist movement really took off, you write a bit about how he was still very aware of early feminist writers and commented favorably on them. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that aspect of Merton's yes. life. You can elaborate on his position on feminism. Yes. He um, engaged in a lively correspondence with uh, Rosemary Ruther. Rosemary Ruther was a, a, quite a radical 
Catholic feminist theologian. She was teaching at Howard University, the black university in the inner city of Washington, D.C. And they had this correspondence back and forth. And Ruther was only 29 years old. And Merton was 51 at the time. So really, it was quite humble of him to to allow himself to really enter in this, this um, dialogue because Ruther was very severe on him, actually. And... Um, uh, uh, but he, he took it, he took the criticism, and, and they engaged in, a, in a, an important um, dialogue. And so that's just one sign of his openness. Um, he also, of course, was right on the, on the button when it came to Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, you know, the, the book that people say launched the ecological movement, that um, Rachel Carson was fired from her job as a scientist in academia for that book. And they said, this is a, an hysterical woman. She's, she's worried about, about bunnies and trees. And Merton, on the other hand, did the obvious. He wrote, immediately he read the book. He wrote her a several-page letter saying, this is really an important book. Because of your works, he said, we're going to cease using DDT on our monastic farm and so forth. He went on and on about it. So it's just what you said. He was so alert to what was happening in the culture but he had the spiritual um, uh, discernment to realize what was really important. The women's movement was one of those things. As you say, it was just kind of getting off the ground, and he was there. And it wasn't just Ruther, but other uh, feminist theologians that he was reading, or philosophers that he was reading. And, uh, and he was there, as I say, when, when the ecological issue uh, came up. And, of course, he was there, as you said, regarding Dr. King, but also Malcolm X. He was also supportive of Malcolm X. And both of them were very controversial in the early 60s when uh, Merton was, um, was uh, writing about them. He did not wait for King to become a hero or something. And, of course, remember, King died... Um, the year that Merton died. And so it was more after his death, which is so often the case with prophets, yes. that King became a heralded figure, if you will. But when things were rough and tumble, Merton was there supporting him. And uh, so, yeah, he had this great, what I'd call moral intuition. Uh, and he was, he was there to respond to the real um, goings-on of the times. And, of course, in the 60s, there were some very significant moral movements that were going on. Yeah. Uh, he, he talks about landing at University of Santa Barbara um, when uh, there was a lot of protest because of the uh, youth protesting education that in the late 1960s. And one of the leaders of the protest was, was a Frenchman, actually. And he, he asked Merton, well, who are you, this old guy in the room? You see, with all these ranting and raving young people. Merton wasn't speaking. He was just there. And Merton said, well, I'm a monk. And then and, and the, the, the leader said, well, I'm a hippie and I'm a monk too. And so they got into a dialogue about hip, what hippies and monks have in common. Right. They're both counterculture. Right, right. Well, so speaking of counterculture, I mean, obviously Merton has impacted your life deeply. You know, he was a rebel for sure. And then, you know, you in your own right, I mean, being expelled from the Dominican order is no small accomplishment. So I would love to hear more about the impact that Merton has had on you personally, in your life, in your work, and, and, uh, and what you do. Well, as I say, I read him when I was a teenager, and I was inspired by his, uh, his vocation. Yeah. 
is vision, the contemplative life. Um, and I certainly read him through the years uh, because I noticed that I quote him in a lot of my works, my book, Original Blessing, for example. And um, I dedicate my one of my early books to him, to him and Rabbi Heschel. By the way, he was a close friend of Rabbi Heschel and um, of uh, Rabbi Zama Shachner, too, who visited him several times in the monastery. Um, but I did not rely heavily on Merton as a theologian. Why not? I was suspicious, frankly, of what I call the the Merton factory or the Merton industry. He was also, I, I learned when I read his journals, which came out only 25 years after his death, he criticized the monastery when he was alive for pushing him to write too much. He felt right. he was being used, actually, to make money uh, for the monastery. And I felt that even after he died, the monastery kept putting out all these books of his, and I just kind of uh, kept my distance a bit because I felt um, it was just too much. It was like a a factory or an industry. And I just felt I had my own path I had to walk. And that's one thing that I really like, reason I, I like doing this book, because in a way I'm, I'm not only talking about Merton's circle of his journey, but, but my own and how we've, our circles have intersected. Because um, as I say, the, the creation spiritual tradition that has so uh, been my work for 45 years ever since it was named by my mentor, Père Chenou, French-Dominican in Paris, where I studied. Um, now I see that my work and Merton's have really overlapped a lot. Uh, but um, in some ways, my journey has been my journey. His has been his. But we've overlapped, uh, and especially around Eckhart and around the creation spiritual path. So I find this very, very satisfying and and interesting and um, and useful. But I really, uh, if you look at the people I quote most, well, of course, Eckhart is a good example, of course. I use Eckhart so much. Uh, but I didn't know that Merton was also using Eckhart a lot because um, I had not really asked those questions of Merton's, uh, Merton's work. Uh, so, so I read him, but I did not go real uh, hard into trying to kind of appropriate him uh, I was going my own path, and uh, uh, there was a certain independence there from Merton, you might see in my work. Uh, but here, at the, toward the end of my life, I'm seeing how much overlap there was. And I'm discovering things. For example, I learned in reading his journal that he praises Chenu, my mentor, but time and time again. Chenu is very important to Merton because it opened up the whole political... See, Chenu was a great historian, and he talks about the end of the Constantinian era, Mert, uh, Chenu was silenced. He was a Dominican, too, like I was. He was silenced for 12 years by Pope Pius XII because he was part of the worker priest movement, which is uh, working with the Marxist unions after the Second World War. So he was silenced. But in the Second Vatican Council, he was um, uh, brought in by a third world bishop, I might say, and he was uh, very much a part of that council. Um, so the fact that Merton got a lot out of Chenu was really exciting to me. And uh, so we've had these overlaps without my knowing that we had these overlaps <laughs> along the way. <clears throat> and the role of art, again, it was Chenu who, who pointed out to me that, that uh, the importance of creativity in art and the whole struggle for justice. And, and Chenu, you really, really Chenu's the grandfather of liberation theology. And uh, as well as creation spiritual, he was a great figure 
and historically speaking. And um, uh, I was delighted to see that Merton knew him. And then Win Abbot Winandi ran a, uh, a colony of hermits in Vancouver Island when I was a young Dominican, my young 20s, and I went there for a summer uh, thinking about becoming a hermit. Well, I learned later that Merton knew Winandi extremely well and very much he would quote him to the abbot and others about the need for the for the aeromedical tradition to come back, etc. So that's another common figure that Merton and I uh, shared uh, without my knowing it until I did this book. And the same is true of Heschel. When Heschel wrote his classic work on the prophets, a big thick book that's absolutely classic, Merton responded immediately again and said, this is exactly what we need. Well, my reading uh, the book on the prophets early in my theological career around 1971 or so, uh, that was very important to me too, to read Heschel and get to know Heschel better. And it turns out Heschel and Merton were very close. So, so we've had these uh, intersections with common teachers, you might say, uh, that um, I didn't know about until I wrote this book. Yeah, it sounds like it was a really exciting experience for you. That's uh, that's really wonderful. It was. It was fun to see my mentors, other people's mentors, and how we intersect. You know, it's just fun. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, (laughs) I I feel like we've had a great talk about the book, but I also acknowledge we've barely really scratched the surface of what is going on in these pages. There is so much that you covered in this book. So that said, is there something... I didn't ask you to close out this conversation that you'd like to discuss in that, that's in the book. Um, well, what if I were to um, would give a little time here to a Merton and read another one of his his passages? I would love that. This is a passage of the Via Positiva, the Via Positiva, uh, the four paths in Christ spirituality, and the Via Positiva is experience of God, the God of wonder and awe and beauty. And um, uh, here's a passage. He says, I live in the woods out of necessity. I get out of bed in the middle of the night because it is imperative that I hear the silence of the night alone and with my face on the floor say psalms alone in the silence of the night. The silence of the forest is my bride and the sweet dark warmth of the whole world is my love. And out of the heart of that dark warmth comes a secret that is heard only in silence. But it is the root of all the secrets that are whispered by all the lovers in their beds all over the world. It's just a beautiful passage, I think. It really is. Where where Merton is, first of all, notice how non-anthropocentric it is, that he's marrying human love, uh, to the silence of the night and the love of the forest and the love of the forest for us. So he's setting human love in the context of cosmology and nature. And uh, who could say that better than Merton? I mean, I mean <laughs> you can't top that, that passage for, for exclaiming the mysticism of lovemaking. Yeah. So um, that's Merton. And he, he touch, as you say, he touches us still. Yes. But not only at that the level of political criticism and consciousness, but also at this level of uh, the intimate and the mystical and uh, uh, and the via positiva. So um, I, I, uh, I'm grateful to Merton for his uh, 
articulation of what a spiritual journey really is. And uh, he covers the, the depths and the, what, what Heschel called the recesses of our existence. Um, and what I call the four paths of Christian spirituality, he touches them in, uh, with beauty and with uh, words that uh, awaken us and that are memorable. So uh, I'll always be grateful. As will I. And, hmm. uh, and, and I'm grateful to you for this wonderful work. And, uh, and I'm sure that it will bring even more um, interest towards Merton's offerings to the world. So thank you very much, Matthew, not only for your time, but for writing this book. I'm sure it's a, it'll be a gift to all who read it. Well, thank you, Chris, for your intelligent questions and uh, conversation and for having a program like this that allows us to talk about things that matter, like Thomas Merton. <laughs> <laughs> I do what I can do. <laughs> well, well, Matthew, thank important. you. Have a very nice day. And again, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciated. Exactly. Be well. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.